You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver, a.k.a. Trend Falling Plus Something, and me, Nils Kostolarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you are new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Alan last week where we discussed the currency markets and how we might see a new era of volatility in these markets moving forward, as well as the recent performance of trend following and how that compares to historical terms. Plus, Alan shared a few insights from Alfred Winslow Jones, who is credited for setting up the first hedge fund uh, in the world back in the 1940s. So if you missed that episode, I hope you will queue it up as your next episode on your podcast app. Rob, it is great to be back with you this week. It feels like a long time ago since I last spoke to you, even though it's only been a couple of months. How are you doing? How are things in the UK? Uh, the sun is shining. The birds are singing. Uh, I'm feeling very virtuous because I got up early and went for a run this morning. So I'm all I'm all ready to go. Oh my God! Yeah, all that I can I can feel the energy coming out of your voice here, um, Rob. Excellent. Um, we have a wonderful lineup of questions and topics. Um, but of course, before we dive into all of that, I will do my usual little um, market wrap. I also want to uh, just acknowledge and say a really big thank you to all of those who uh, left ratings and reviews uh, in iTunes and Spotify. I haven't done that for a while, so thanks so much for that. There's some really nice ones in between. And also, um, I want to really say that I appreciate all the emails that I get personally um, with some uh, wonderful uh, feedback. So uh, just wanted to let you know that I certainly appreciate this. The week as well as the month of April, was pretty hectic in the markets with few places to hide if you were an equity or bond investor. The Nasdaq tumbled 13% for its worst monthly showing since October 2008, and the S&P 500 almost 9% down in April. And the World Government Bond Index fell another 2.81% for the worst monthly return since 2016, whilst treasuries were very close to uh, breaking above the 3% level in yields. And of course, the list of tech stocks having a rough time in April is pretty long, but I do think Amazon's 14% swan dive yesterday is worth noticing. And one of the symbols of the investor mania psychology, the ARK Innovation Fund, closed at a new two-year low uh, and is on track to have its worst month ever, I think. I have seen some commentators paint a picture of a cascading set of problems all hitting at the same time. It combines the nuclear anxieties of the 50s and the 60s with the inflation threat of the 70s, the crime waves of the 1980s and 1990s, and the tension of immigration from the 2000s and beyond. And sentiment is not great at the moment. In March, the University of Michigan Consumer Index slipped to 63, the lowest reading since 2011. And while the vehicle buying condition index fell to 53, the lowest in six in the 62-year history of the survey. But 
not to focus entirely on negative indications. The April unemployment report to be released uh, next Friday is likely to show another month of well above trend gain in jobs. Weekly initial claims for unemployment insurance have been trending lower, giving no reason to doubt the consensus forecast of uh, 385,000 new jobs, a robust job report, which is a fair description of the current state, is going to be the best indicator of economic growth. Perhaps this will outweigh the n- numerous negative indicators mentioned, but again, it may not. Finally, I uh, would be remiss if I didn't mention next week's or next Wednesday rate hike decision. The Fed has cleared the way for a 50 basis points hike, but uh, there have been hints that there could be as much as 75 basis points. Most Fed watchers, though, seems to be in the 50 basis point camp, and most of them don't think the committee is bold enough to do more than that. Anyways, Rob, uh, since it's been a couple of months, um, so lots of things has happened really since I last spoke to you. What have um, mostly manifested on your radar um, in terms of news and market moves and all of that stuff? Yeah, so I'll, I'll do what I normally do, which is quickly go through some performance numbers um, and then just sort of pick some some interesting kind of things out of that. So I think the last time we spoke was probably early March, I'm guessing. It was. It was sort of the early days of the, the war in Ukraine and the markets had been, you know, performing extremely well. Um, so one thing um, I thought was would be interesting is it's the, to have a look at my first quarter of performance. Um, so for the first three months of the year, I was up 27% which obviously is very good. Um, that And for the last month, it's been exactly a month, obviously, since the, the quarter ended now, um, I'm up 4.7%. So the, the kind of good performance continued, although not quite at the absolutely incredible rate that it was in the, in the first three months of the year. Um, and that brings my year to date to 33.5%, which to kind of put things in context, um, if I was to stay at this level, in other words, not make or lose any money for the next um, try and work it, uh, eight months, I think, left of the year, if I've done that correctly. Right. Maths with small numbers is never my strong point, ironically. Sure. Um, that would actually be my, my second best year since I started trading in, in 2014 with my own money. So it would be, you know, right up there in, in terms of a good year. And of course, you know, there's still eight months to go. So it could go up some more, it could go down some more. We'll, we'll have to see. You could just stop trading, Rob. That is one way of well, guaranteeing you get 27% or 30 I mean, I, I, you know, one, one thing um, we used to joke about um, in my first job, which was investment banking, you know, if you had a really good kind of start to the year, the, basically the idea was to spend the rest of the year just, just doing the absolute minimum you could get away with. So, you know, pricing client tra- trades way out off the benchmark and, and not taking any proprietary bets and just trying to keep, because, you know, you're like, well, we've met our budget. So, it, there's only downside from here, right? So, uh, so yeah, maybe I should just just turn the thing off. But sadly, we know we can't predict performance, so we just have to leave the thing on and see how it goes. Looking at the the last week as a kind of point of comparison, a fairly flat week actually, just just up 25 basis points over the last week. So, uh, just focusing now on on some um, kind of market stories, if you like. Um, so, let me see. I've got a lot of reports open on my computer. Let me just look at the uh, what have I got here? The year-to-date numbers, uh, sort of worst and best. Um, so my best markets year-to-date. I mean, it's still dominated by energies, heating oil, gasoline, Brent, uh, crude. But also near up there now, showing an appearance is the yen. Of course, when the yen's been kind of the, it's been less about energies and more about the yen in the last few weeks. I think in terms of trend-following performance for most people. So that that kind of is popping up there. 
Uh, and then down at the bottom, it's mostly equities. Um, so and also the the two volatility markets I trade, the VIX and the V stocks. Um, so yeah, if I look at say the last month, uh, which obviously is now um, exactly March, the yen is right up there uh, as as the, as the best performing market, but you know by by quite some margin actually. Um, and the you know and then there's not really such a big oh it's all about energy story behind that. It's more of a mixed picture, but the yen really stands out as the you know, the trade of the month for me. And then just just very quickly to say for the last week, because obviously that will align with the, the numbers you're going to report. Um, as I said, it's been a fairly a fairly flat week. Interestingly, I actually made money in, in yen dollar, but lost money in yen euro. So, you know, in the last week, so kind of figure that out, I guess. Um, made a little bit of money in gas. Um, so not, not a very kind of particularly obvious picture in the last week, but in the last month, definitely been all about the yen. Year to date, all have been about the energies. Uh, looking at my current positioning, because I think that's potentially more interesting than looking in the rearview mirror as well. Um, so my risk at the moment is pretty low. So it's running at about, trying to do the maths in my head again, which is says not my strong point, running at about 40% of, of my long-term average, say. Let's, let's, let's say that. So for those of you that understand uh, the way I calculate risk, it's about 10% annualized standard deviation. My biggest short position is the yen. Not surprised, yen dollar. My biggest long position is is crude, um, and then in between that, you know, I'm, I'm also long a couple of soy markets. Um, I'm short Korean ten-year bonds. I'm short, interestingly, pound euro. So so it's kind of a a, a fairly diversified, low risk. You know, it's the sort of thing that my 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 optimization tends to come up with is not necessarily an obvious list of markets, but you look at them individually and you think, yeah, it makes sense to still be long energies, right? I'm expressing this bet through at the moment through crude. Makes sense still to be short yen. I'm expressing this bet with an outright short yen bet. So it's kind of kind of fairly obvious what's what's going on there. So I, I think um, the last month has been more of a like a normal month. Um, the first three months, you know, big returns, high risk, very concentrated. The last month, although it has been, you know, the, the yen sort of stood out actually overall, you know, it, there's been contributions from other sectors as well. So it's been a fair, you know, a bit more of a kind of consistent rather than a, it doesn't feel like I'm betting everything on red this month, if that makes sense. But the first three months was very much focused on energy. So, yeah, no, it does make sense. And um, you, you you mentioned that, um, that I was going to be talking specifically about numbers, but what people may have noticed uh, in the last few months, and you've clearly haven't noticed since you've been on this extended Easter holiday, um, is that I actually don't do that so much anymore because we post a report uh, once a month on the blog uh, where we go into details about the performance. Um, but what I will say is that I completely agree with you that at the moment there's a lot of breath in the portfolio. So markets that were making money in the beginning of the year, kind of the other markets now in the leadership, which of course is what needs to happen usually when you have very strong performance periods. You have to have many markets, many sectors contributing, um, and I think that's what we're seeing. Another thing that um, I just wanted to highlight is that we've often seen these headlines in the uh, in the media about the lost decade for trend following and, and all of that stuff. But I actually just looked at the numbers for the last 10 years, um, both our own numbers, but also the industry. And they are inc- exceptionally solid. So that's not where this lost decade is. But there is actually a lost decade because I noticed that the World Government Bond Index, the total return for the last 10 years is 0.76%. So you had no returns whatsoever 
from that side of your portfolio. Equities, of course, have done well. Um, and um, so it is interesting, but we just need to get the journalists to talk about a different asset class when they write these headlines about the last decade, I think. Now, generally speaking, uh, in terms of uh, trend-following performance, there's no doubt that it was another strong month, uh, I'm sure, from what I've seen already, early numbers. And I think most household uh, names of the uh, of the CTAs will be finishing uh, April at new all-time highs. I'm pretty pretty convinced of that. And, you know, we did see a sell-off in equities uh, and in some of the commodities in April. Um, so uh, trend followers would have had to look elsewhere in the portfolio to capture some trends, as you pointed out, currencies for sure. And even though the yen got most of the media attention, there were a few other things like the euro also did pretty well. The pound did pretty well if you're trading those against the dollar, I would say. Um, and then, you know, fixed income, energies and grains, they all continue to support the performance, maybe not as much as before. Um, and um, I think equities probably a mixed bag depending on your look back period whether you made a lost or were flat in that uh, sector um, and then metals i'm kind of thinking that they probably lost a little bit uh, overall my trend barometer remains high it finished the week and the month uh, at 64 has consistently been above 50 uh, i think pretty much all year so it's really confirming what's going on um, in the trend following space and just briefly, in terms of volatility trading, um, just because it's a little bit uh, interesting in some ways, uh, you know, the biggest surprise uh, perhaps was uh, taking place uh, Friday, where the uncertainty or the fixed strike volatility initially declined a little bit, despite the S&P 500 tumbling quite significantly. And then just later in the afternoon, in the US session, and especially in the last hour into the close, both the S&P 500 declines and the increase in uncertainty gathered momentum. So with the S&P 500, you know, really having a rough time, realizing its worst day since June of 2020, the VIX only rose about four points, which is less than it rose on Tuesday. And comparing um, this move of four points uh, compare that to June when the S&P had its, uh, you know, last time had its worst month, uh, worst day. At that time, the VIX uh, went up by 13 points. So quite a big difference, really, uh, in that sense. All right, let's uh, jump into, we have a long list of great questions. Um, and plus, we have topics we can uh, jump into as well. So it's going to be a busy busy session today. Um, so I'm just going to jump into it. Um, let's start with a question from Adrian that came in. Adrian writes, I'm building a stock universe generator for a systematic momentum trend following strategy to one, reduce the total number of stocks um, and two, select suitable stocks. What might be quote unquote good criteria filters for stock selection based on the last quarter year? Uh, for example, price indicators, fundamentals, I mean, this is not something I uh, work with normally, Rob, so I'm kind of relying on you uh, helping Adrian out on this one. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of key questions. I guess one is, is this like a long-short portfolio, a hedged portfolio, or is he is he building a basket of long-only stocks? Because obviously the answer might potentially be different for those. Um, I'm going to assume that it's long and short, that he's planning to be able to short some stocks, which means... He's probably looking for something that's kind of overall hedged effectively. Um, 
if if that's incorrect, then you know you need to make some tweaks to that. But to be honest, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. Um, so so yeah, I mean we can we can broadly divide all kind of quantitative signals into I guess two categories: price and other. Uh, and other sometimes gets called fundamental. And um, you know, let, let's so let's start with price because that that's the you know in the sense that, that there's a sort of trend following bias on this podcast obviously there's going to be a bias also towards using yes, so price someone, as a signal someone accused us from from being biased for, towards trend following on twitter what's that all about rob um i well you know i'm not i'm not going to i'm not going to comment because obviously <laughs> i i believe there is more to the world than just trend following but not everyone agrees with that so so uh, maybe maybe what i'm going to try and do in my future appearances Niels, is is try and put more include like more non trend following stuff because Ooh. you know, just to even things out a bit on average, because you You're know, definitely so a ripple on the show. Rob. If you if you take the average of me plus Jerry, it's still going to be like ninety percent trend following, right? Because obviously, you know, he's a hundred percent, I'm about eighty percent, so that averages out to about ninety percent. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's a you know, so we, we want a little bit in there for the for the non trend followers of for this thing. Of course, we do. Of course. Um, anyway, so let back to the question. <laughs> so price. So um, if you're doing a like long short portfolio, then obviously what you're going to look at is effectively the relative performance of, you know, a stock against the average for the stock. So let's take the last few months. Obviously, the last few months has been not great for the stock market. It's been particularly horrendous for the for tech stocks, right? Uh, I think the Nasdaq's down like 13% last month. Um, which I think is the the worst performance of the Nasdaq since like 2008. So, um, you know, if you were doing like a kind of grand S and P 500 universe, um, the the worst relative performance would definitely be in the tech sector. Now, it does look as if you, you're kind of probably okay to use anything between about you know like a three month and a twelve month look back, say, for for relative performance within a, within a stock index for that to sort of work. If you go much slower than that, you actually end up with mean reversion effects. So what, what tends to happen is stocks that are done very badly in the last, say, three or four or five years, you know, because they've been so far beaten down in price, they, they start to look really good value and people will actually buy them. So you get mean reversion. So for, you know, for your sort of price look back for relative performance, any, anywhere between three and 12 months is probably okay. Much shorter than that, and you'll probably start to incur trading costs that are a bit high much slower than that and you'll get a mean reversion. So now we turn then to non-price, um, which you know you can call fundamentals. And obviously in, in stocks there is a, a long history of, of you know people using all kinds of accounting ratios, dividend yields, price book, leverage, you know, forward expected growth and earnings. I mean, you know, there's 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 loads of these um, out there. And um, you know there are there are plenty of, of of books that that will kind of list them all out for you, and you know which would I which would I use? I mean, what, generally what I advocate is using some kind of averaging, right? So using not just one indicator because um, that's putting an awful lot of pressure on 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 that, and you're losing diversification because you get diversification from trading things that are uncorrelated. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that um, different different accounting ratios can mean different things. So if we take dividend yields, for example, dividend yields don't make a lot of sense when people are doing a lot of stock buybacks because, you know, the, the company's earning surplus money, but instead of using that to increase the dividend, they're using it to buy back the shares. And, um, you know, to take a, a, an example that's close to my heart, so Man Group, my former employers, you know, that they do a lot of stock buybacks. Um, what they, they tend to use their um, excess performance fees to, to do stock buybacks 
and the, the kind of core profit, if you like, from management fees they use for dividends. So if it's been a really good year for performance, that you know that money won't necessarily go come through in, in the form of a high dividend yield, but it will go to shareholders in the form of a buyback. So that that's why it makes sense to use several of these accounting ratios. Um, so that's kind of the ba- the basic idea, and you know you, you can the, the most one of the most simple things you can do is is just do a z score of a ratio, which means you basically just say, well, what's the ratio average across all companies? What's the standard deviation of that ratio cross sectionally? Divide the current companies, say price earning yield divided by that number, that gives you a z score. Or you could just rank them all in order from you know best to worst and take an average of the ranks. There's various ways of doing it. None of them are particularly better than any other. Don't don't let anyone tell you there's a perfect way of doing anything. Um, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. Um, a few things to watch out for then, um, once you've got this basic structure in place, um, is, is to think about comparability. Um, so it makes more sense, for example, to compare, I don't know, dividend yields within a particular sector like utilities. Because, you know, traditionally tech stocks, high growth stocks don't pay very much in dividends. Mature businesses like utilities tend to pay more in dividends. You'll end up with a systematic sector bias on your dividend yield uh, indicator. Now, that may not bother you. You may take the view that that you're happy with that sector bias. Um, but if you're not, you may want to consider neutralizing that sector bias by doing your, your averaging process within sectors rather than across sectors. Um, and, and then to take that to another level, if you're running this thing across countries, so not just within a single country, um, di- you know, again, different indicators mean different things in different countries. So um, if you take Japan, for example, you know, up till about um, 2010, the yields in the Japanese stock market were much lower than the US. Um, so there would have been a systematic pro-US, anti-Japan in an international equities portfolio. Not so much the case now because buybacks in the US have really become a big thing. So US dividend yields have, have fallen as well. Um, but um, yeah, certainly in the past, there was a big difference. And obviously, you can see big differences if you compare you know, UK companies with, with German companies, with US companies, and so on and so forth. So um, if you are going to do this cross-country, again, you may want to sort of neutralize your, your country calculations or or, or alternatively just run them as separate portfolios which is kind of the more normal way or you may take the view that you're happy to have these country biases which are analogous to the sector biases that you get so yeah i mean it's a huge and complicated thing i mean you know it's an entirely it's a whole industry in itself and um, i'm by no means an expert in in sort of quantitative equity trading i'm sure we've had people on the podcast who are or will have in the future who can give a much better answer to that question but but that's a kind of beginner's guide Sure, sure. And, and your answer obviously is incredibly detailed in, in, in many ways, right? But I do want to, and I'm not trying to be cheeky here, uh, Adrian, but I do want to also just point out that, of course, when Jerry talks about the way he selects the equity universe for his portfolio, he's kind of just picking, um, you know, stocks within each sector that are, you know, liquid, interesting, kind of non, somewhat, you know, diversified within the sector, if I can put it that way. So I think there is, obviously, you can always try to be incredibly precise in many ways, but I also think that trend following lends itself to simpler 
uh, approaches and kind of common sense uh, approaches in many ways when it comes to market selection. Um, so I just want to throw that in there. Um, all right, let's move on. We've got lots of questions. We may not be able to give uh, to give each question that much time, um, but we're going to do our best here. The question that comes here is from Emra. Hope this question makes Rob's deadline, deadline and gets included in this week's episode. Well, it did make the deadline, Emra, so here we are. When I was listening to the episode with Harvey Campbell, one of my takeaways was that he wasn't too keen on the idea of mixing negative skewed strategies with positive skewed strategies, such as trend-following momentum-based strategies, to improve sharp ratio. Did I misunderstand this point? I know Rob combines carry strategy with multiple momentum-based strategies in his futures portfolio. Is he still a proponent of this approach? What would be the argument for mixing positive and negative skew strategies? Um, I think he means Cam Harvey. Um, yes. Yeah. And he wrote Harvey Campbell. That's why I read it. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. yeah that's right. fine. It's obviously yeah, yeah, Cam Harvey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so very briefly, um, I, I'll be honest with you. I, even though I was on that podcast, I don't remember exactly what Cam said at the time. No, but I do. I do remember. And what it refers to, and not to spend too much time on this, um, what it refers to is that there was a meeting that you attended oh, uh, yeah, yeah. with Cam and yeah. where they were proposing, I don't think it was his proposal, but there's someone were proposing a strategy that looked like it was a negative skewed strategy. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. someone called Rob raised his hand and said, I'm not so sure this is a good idea when yeah. we are trying to do positively skewed strategies. That's, I think, where it comes okay. from. Um, the way I like to think about it is this. Um, I've got a large menu of strategies with different, characteris uh, different characteristics, which obviously makes you different from someone like Jerry who has just one. Um, I can pull levers to allocate between these strategies and that will give me, um, you know, some outcome. And let me just bring that down to just two, ver two variables, two characteristics I want to measure. One is, say, sharp ratio, risk-adjusted performance, and the other is skew. Now, I can pull that lever a long way over and end up with a very pure trend-following portfolio that will have extremely high positive skew, but a relatively low sharp ratio. Alternatively, I can pull that lever all the way back and allocate to, um, you know, I, I think I might, I actually have some strategies that, that are fairly negative skew. I, I don't I don't have anything that's like massively negative skew, but you can imagine if you had a whole universe of things you'd allocate to, you'd have something like option selling that's relatively high sharp, but massively negative skew. So I could pull the lever all the way back and just put all my money in that. Now, the question of where that lever goes isn't really a question of, you know, optimization. It's a question of personal preference. And the difference is that when I was working in AHL, we, we kind of marketed ourselves as a trend-following style fund, plus some other stuff. And the idea was that, we, you know, we were basically pulling the lever a little bit in the, the direction away from pure trend-following, boosting our sharp, maybe slightly reducing our skew, the objection I had in that specific meeting was that we were going to pull the handle too far in this direction. I believe that was something that our clients wouldn't be happy with. Um, and there is also the question of the fact that you can't necessarily measure exactly what the skew will be will be on something, particularly for things that are very negative skew, um, because the, the back test may not accurately reflect what the real downside might be. So that was the situation I was in then. Now I'm in a situation where I'm happier to pull the lever a little bit further towards sharp away from positive skew. It's my money, right? I can do what the hell I like with it. Yeah, and that 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 works for me. You know, so, so to very quickly answer the question, 
I would say that generally speaking, you're better off with a mixture of strategies and not just pure trend following. That's a debate, obviously, we'll have many times in this program. With I obviously am a massive disagreement with, with somebody else. I won't try and do his accent because I always get it wrong. But but um, you know, it's it's. It, I would say most people are better off with a mixture of things. In terms of how you mix those things, in terms of pulling the lever from skew towards sharp and back again, is almost entirely a matter of personal preference. Yeah, makes sense. And by the way, I think we might actually do a debate soon where we get everyone together like we did in December and 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 hash some of these things out because they are really interesting and there really isn't a right or wrong answer. Um, so, um, But there is some great things to be discussed for sure. Anyways, we have now a question from Blink18 and this is a little bit of an exception because normally I would skip questions from people that doesn't have a real name, so to speak, but we'll put that as a yellow card, as they would do in soccer or football. So anyway, skip a blink 18, just be aware of that. If you're from the EU, what do you do with your uninvested cash, euros, in your trading account if you're systematically trading futures in the US um, dollar? Interest rates are negative in the euro, and US euro bonds are in free fall. Dollar is up. Portfolios is invested in futures where only margin has FX risk. I was thinking about maintaining neutral cash position, splitting 50% in USD and 50% in euro with regular rebalancing. Now I have around 90% in euro and the rest in US dollar. And then the question is, any better ideas? I well, wish I did. Do you have any better <laughs> ideas? Um, so they, the, 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 it depends on what worries you, right? Um, so, for example, um, if I was running institutional money and I was running a fund that was denominated in, say, sterling, I would be really super careful about making sure that I had no um, net currency exposure in my account. Now, what that will mean in practice is my account's going to have going to have to have dollars in it. It's going to have to have euros in it because I'm trading dollars and euros. I'm not, I'm not actually trading any UK-based futures at all. So, um, you know, the, the, I need to have money in that account for margin. Um, and as a rule of thumb, um, I'm probably running at somewhere, but anywhere between about 20% and 50% margin usage on average. Um, so I, I can have half that account in sterling quite happily, no currency risk on that. The rest of it's going to be, some of it's going to have to be in dollars or euros. Now, if I was, as I said, in running institutional money and, and my main concern was avoiding currency risk, in other words, PNL happening in the fund due to FX changes rather than me making money in futures, right? That's the definition of currency risk. I would then have to um, have some additional um, trades in there. Um, it basically, I'd, probably the easiest way of doing it is to do it with futures. So I'd, I'd have a, little, a few little futures in there, which would be effectively hedging back my euro and dollar cash exposure so that, that I, wasn't, I didn't have any net cash exposure. Most of the time, that would be a problem because it's still going to cost me money, right? And how much is going to cost me or whether that's a gain or a loss is going to depend on the on the carry of those futures. Um, and, you know, you may you may take the view that, well, I'll do it another way, which is, is to uh, actually, rather than having dollars and euros sitting there in my account, the other thing you can do is borrow those dollars and euros from your broker. Um, and my, my broker does this fairly invisibly. In other words, if I, if I do a trade and I need dollar margin, and I haven't got dollar margin. It says, "Well, I'm going to buy some dollar. I'm going to borrow dollars for you." The downside of that, of course, is I'm paying a lending charge on top of that. So that's a really expensive way of doing it. Um, so 
if let's if I assume that I'm I'm not going to do that, I'm actually going to have explicit pots of money for my margin. Then if I don't do these FX hedges, then I am going to get FX exposure PNL. I don't actually pay negative interest rates in my brokerage account in euros. I don't get anything at all actually. But but there might if I had more money in there potentially, I would be doing. And then again, that would be an issue potentially. Um, so so yeah, it's it is no easy answer, and, and it's going to be a question of what you're worried about. I'm not so worried about FXPNL, even though it can be quite large. It can be like two or three percent of my account value every year. It could be FXPNL. That doesn't bother me. It's my money. I'd rather do that than than pay for hedges I don't need and make things a bit more complicated. I mean, yes, as as, as um, Blink says, there are other things you can do, like for example, buy cash bonds. But you know, the yield on those isn't that much better in cash. You potentially got counterparty risk. It reduces your flexibility in terms of moving your margin around because you might have to sell that bond and move it to another currency and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just one of the, you know, the kind of annoyances of trading across lots of different currencies, which obviously brings you huge benefits because, um, you know, you can access futures outside your own country. Um, but, but you know, it's always going to cause you these problems. Yeah, I mean, I would summarize it very simply uh, to Blink18, and that is to say, well, if you're based in Euro, um, you know, what's the problem? Yeah, okay, you pay some negative interest rates, but that's that's the way it is. Uh, paying half a percent, um, uh, you know, per year, for example, in negative interest rate could be a very cheap way of keeping your cash compared to putting some money in, the, in, in dollars and then the dollar loses 10% over the next 12 months, right? So I wouldn't worry about it too much because... If you're, if the whole reason for why you're doing trend following and systematic trading is to make money from your system, well, that should be the focus. And also, like Rob said, I would certainly not put anything in bonds, you know, because it has to be cash equivalent. If you do that, you introduce another return stream into your system, which is the PNL from the bonds. And as you rightly said, we've just been through a period where bonds, even two-year bonds, have had a rough time. So I would just stick to focusing on what the system can produce for you and and then keep everything down uh in terms of yeah so anyways i think we've been through that enough um question from harry hindsight i don't know if hindsight really is the name or harry is the name so kind of the same comment as before but harry, uh, i i know i know harry's real name so it's okay i know so i know harry has written in before so i'm not going to be quite as harsh here anyways uh, harry writes besides execution can you tell us a bit more about the substance and value of the day-to-day -day work of 100 PhDs plus at firms like Winton, one view frequently expressed on this podcast is that tinkering is bad. Are these firms overthinking the systematic investment game? Well, and we don't want to pick on Winton, by the way, because they're not the only ones who have lots of PhDs on staff. So uh, let's make it more broad and frequent. Um, Rob, yeah, what are your thoughts um of... Big research teams, which obviously looks great to uh, when you go in and you yeah. want to pitch for a pension fund, and you can say you have this uh, massive team of PhDs that usually gives people a lot of comfort. Uh, there's no secret as to why these firms are the ones with the big uh, dollars, because they get money from sources that would otherwise, um, you know, not go to the smaller managers with smaller teams. Yeah, um, it's an interesting one. I mean, a hundred plus PhDs. Um, for a CTA just doing, if they were just doing research, that that's probably quite a lot. Um, so a lot of those people would be doing other jobs, which you don't necessarily need a PhD for. I mean, I, I should say up front, I don't have a PhD. 
Um, but without sounding arrogant, if, if I could be bothered, I could probably go and get one. Okay, I, th I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to say. Um, the, the, um, a lot of those people might be doing other things, like, for example, working as quantitative developers, which is a sort of, you know, a cross between being a software developer and a, and a quantitative researcher. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, all, all you know, it, it, all kind of jobs in systematic hedge funds are on that continuum, right? All front office jobs, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, everyone does some coding, right? You can't get away without doing any coding. Even And even the, the, the people who are described as software developers will have probably have quite a good understanding of, of the research process and, and so on. So it's very hard to draw a gray line and say, yeah, you're, you're a developer, you're a, you're a researcher, but let's leave that to one side. Um, so Harry's mentioned execution. Obviously, that that's very important. Um, there are other things, you know, there's the sort of other things that you expect to find in most hedge funds, like, for example, a risk management function, a port, you know, a portfolio management function. Um, and you may think, well, surely you don't need a risk manager, you don't need a portfolio manager, because you know, <laughs> it's a it's an automated system, right? But but. Um, it, it's kind of, um, I think when you're trading other people's money and we're looking, we're talking, if you've got a hundred plus research team, we're talking billions of dollars here, right? You know, we're not talking about even a few hundred million probably. We're talking about big numbers. Um, clients kind of expect you've got a risk management team. You know, they kind of expect there to be one and they're not, they're not, you're not going to get awarded an institutional mandate if they, if they come to see your office and they're like, right, okay, first person I need to see is a risk manager. And you just point to a, a computer and say, well, that computer's job is risk management. That that's not going to fly. So you know, they, you do need to have um, people in these functions, and because of the, the sophistication of what's going on, they're going to be highly educated people. People, and yeah, they may well have a PhDs. Um, so there's all these people kind of doing all this stuff. Um, now, th there's then the question of whether you need to have people kind of quote unquote maintaining or refitting the current trading system, right? Um, and you know there is a degree of that as well so you might for example add new markets um some of the a lot a lot of these funds now are going into outside of futures into other things like you know interest rate swaps credit default swaps and so on and so forth um those things are maybe not as trivial from a kind of pricing perspective um so you need people with kind of quantitative analytics um backgrounds who can actually price things as well as decide whether they're going to go up or down um, you know, they may be doing things like um, more more complicated relative value and things like that, where you need to have people who, you know, quite. It, it's more of a kind of um, it requires more manpower than just just kind of sticking a, a price into a moving average and saying is it going up or is it going down. It's a bit more complicated than that. Um, but the the quite a lot of these people, what they will be doing is is not you know business management functions like risk management, portfolio management, software development, not maintaining or refitting the current system. They'll be working on new stuff. And, um, you know, there's a reason for that. There's a couple of reasons for that. One reason is that not many people have the conviction to say, well, we do this one thing and it's going to work really well for forever. Um, most people are interested in diversifying their businesses and, and launching new funds that do other things. And the the other the reason another reason to do that is um, if you're employing a highly educated, highly motivated person, saying right, well, your job for the next ten years is to babysit this system that works perfectly well. Uh, just make sure it doesn't do anything crazy, and every now and then check the parameters aren't out of line. They're going to leave quite quickly, 
and they're e they're going to leave even if you you know even if you pay them a hell of a lot of money because <laughs> they're going to be you know they're just going to get bored. Um, so the, to be honest, there is a, a, a degree of you know when you're managing people like this, and I speak from experience, obviously, there is a degree of kind of giving them a chance to work on new and interesting projects as well as kind of keeping the other stuff ticking over. And it's getting that balance is quite hard because it's more fun to work on something new. Um, I mean, you and I, before we started, we were talking about some research I did yesterday and I was super excited about this, this you know, brand new piece of research I did yesterday. And I think it's fair to say I was more excited about that than the kind of checking that my current system is still running, which obviously I had to do as well. Now, the the, the issue with, with um, there is an issue with this as well, which is that, you know, you can be accused of clients of style drift. So they're like, well, you're a systematic CTA. You know, why are you doing high frequency trading? Isn't that just a, a distraction? A, B, how do you know you'll be any good at it? Uh, and 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 C, you know, I don't want you putting any of that into my fund. I want, I just want this this stuff you, that I know that you're good at, and also that fits this neat box. So, um, so yeah, that that's quite quite another quite long answer, but but it. You know, I could be cynical and say that, that the only reason you need to employ that many PhDs is, is, is a marketing thing and say, well, you know, we, we must be amazing because look how many PhDs we've got. It's not necessarily the fact that they are PhDs that's important. I think the more interesting question is, you know, do you really need this many people to, to do this one thing? I mean, I'm running effectively a very small CTA myself, by myself. It's by no means a full-time job. And, um, you know, it, it, obviously, I'm not running institutional money because that brings certain overheads with it. Um, but yeah, you could you could quite happily run a very large CTA if you were just doing one thing and, and pretty much kind of not making any changes with a very small team of people, particularly if you outsourced, um, you know, the kind of non front office uh, functions elsewhere. So, so, uh, yeah, there we go. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all of that. Um, I've always thought actually that it was kind of funny that you have PMs in a trend-following firm. I mean, I kind of never quite understood what their role would be, um, but that's just me maybe. And I can say, unlike you, I can say for sure that I would not be able to get a PhD oh, even if, if I that's wanted. That's not true. It's not true. Unless, of course, it was exactly. PhD in trend-following perhaps. <laughs> But but anyways, um, the only the other thing, and and I think you kind of touched on it maybe already, uh, where I do think that there is a lot of time spent from the bigger firms and 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 the, with the bigger teams, it is actually on execution. I think a lot of the research you know goes towards how can we execute ten billion dollars in a trend, even in a trend following strategy, because speaking from experience even at a couple of billion dollars on the management it is not that easy um to do that well and then of course you can argue um well i don't necessarily need to go into that any further but uh, i would concur with you and just say that if you look through performance rankings uh, of of managers it's certainly not necessarily the largest teams that has the best performance not necessarily even the best risk adjusted performance so Let's just leave it um, at that. Let's move on to a question from Richard. Uh, if trend following works best at the asset class level, then should the asset class of an instrument be a criteria for inclusion in a trend following portfolio? Could it be that trading just the marquee assets, not sure what that is, uh, in each uh, asset class is superior to trading a broader set which includes lower class instruments i'm sure you know what i'm going to take a guess from. um so the way i interpret this 
um, question is to say, well, and, and actually, I have a lot of sympathy with this view. But if you if you think that that trends in markets are basically just a kind of an expression of some hidden latent trends that we can't see, and there's probably only ever a small number of those hidden latent trends going on at any one time. So, for example, if you take the last few months, energy's up is a latent trend, okay, and that expresses itself in in the fact that heating oil, crude oil, gas, all these things have gone up. And it's not you always that clear that that's what's going on. But but um, you know I. I and, and I think I'm allowed one plug of my book that I'm writing per episode. So this is the this is the plug, but this is the one. Okay. So you can you this can put one. me in the penalty okay. box if I if I mention it again. But but one thing I do look at actually is is the contribution to of trend towards trend falling performance of trend falling at the asset class level versus trend falling within asset classes. And I think I find that about eighty to eighty five percent of it is coming from the asset class level. Um, in other words. If if you were to tr- if you were to trade just asset classes, you know if if they existed, if there was like a an an energy future that covered all the energy futures in the world, with some weighting, if you could trade just five or six of those, you'd actually get eighty percent of the performance than you'd get from trading, you know, hundreds of these things, um, which you know is is uh, is kind of interesting, I think. Now the question is, what is the what is the best way of doing that? Because of course there aren't really these sev- six or seven futures that express a view of a, of a single asset class and um, my my kind of reading of Richard's question is that you should be able to take say all the energy futures and pick the best and then just trade that um, which I think is what he means by by the marquee assets um, now my problem is I, I don't know how to do that I, I don't know how to pick the the energy future that will do the best um, if I had very limited capital, and I wasn't doing the the dynamic optimization that I do now, and I could only trade seven futures, then I'd pick the energy future that was the best trade-off between costs and the amount of capital required to deploy it, basically. That's what I'd do. Um, I wouldn't be thinking about expected performance because I don't think I can predict expected performance and certainly can't predict it at an asset class level. Uh, sorry, at an instrument level within an asset class. So if if there is some magic way of picking, you know, the the the, the assets that that's most likely to trend within energies, then then yeah, I guess this would work, and it would, as I said, probably give you about eighty to eighty five percent of the performance of a, you know, of trading everything, but it's very hard to do that. Um, it, you know, I, I'm not sure how how what Richard's got in mind in mind for doing that, but I can't think of any way that you you'd be able to get that to work. So your your best bet is if you can, to trade all the energies. And then, obviously, the ones which ex post have the best trend will be the one that you put more risk into and make the most profits out of. Well, exactly right. And I, and I just wanted to uh, add a couple of things to that. I mean, firstly, I would say that actually trend following by default should always be allocating more risk to the best trending market because as the, the trend continues, the risk levels builds up uh, uh, for most trend-following systems that have multiple entries, the risk level would build up so you would have most exposure anyways in the most trending markets. That's one thing. But the other one I, thing I want to pick up on from Rich's question is this. I get this sense of I want the absolute best system, so let me try and optimize to the very best level. And I think that actually goes against what we're trying to um, convey on the podcast, and that uh, that is there is no such thing as the best system or the best model or the best parameter combination. Um, trend following is very much about you know picking things that um, by themselves don't look necessarily to be you know the best, 
but when you blend them together, they become something that is very solid and quite reliable and frankly, pretty consistent once you zoom out a little bit from the day-to-day or month-to-month or year-to-year level. So I think we're always advocating of trying to say, you know, good enough is good enough. Don't do anything silly trying to find the best thing because you end up over-optimizing and you might potentially miss something. I mean, we've been talking about for a while that currencies has been, you know, the worst performing sector for the last 15, 20 years for most trend followers. And now suddenly we're seeing some really great performance from that sector. So again... Does that but mean we should not be trading currencies? Importantly, also, that, that little, performance has been mostly in the yen. So if you just said, oh, if you'd picked the yen as being your quote-unquote marquee asset, um, great, you'd have done well. But if, if you were trading something else, then you, you probably wouldn't have seen such great performance over the last month or few months in, in, in currencies. So, so yeah, it's very hard yeah. to, to say in advance what will be the best. The, if you can trade everything, then the, the best will be the one that contributes the most to your P&L. Absolutely. But we do understand the question from Richard because it's something that is very um, human <laughs> to seek the best you can get. Um, but in our case, we are happy to be mediocre, um, but just be, medi- go, be mediocre for the next 50 years. Um, that should serve us well. All righty. Um, question from Adam. I hope you're well, writes Adam. Uh, we are. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question about two different types of trend-following systems. What are you? What do you and your guests feel are the differences between running a moving average crossover strategy versus a breakout strategy? The most obvious difference is that moving average crossover strategies can be always in the market, whereas breakouts can be completely out of the market for some time. But are there any other differences you believe that are important to note when comparing the two? Um, Great show, as always. Thanks for that, Adam. Before you dive in here, Rob, because you know probably, again, more about the moving averages uh, than I do. But what I will say to you, Adam, is... I think it's quite natural that people think that moving average systems is, you know, is always in the market, but it doesn't have to be that way. Because if you imagine you used four different pairs or even just two different pairs of moving average systems, so four different oscillators, you could have two of them being long and two of them being short, and then net net you would be out of the market. So it's only really if you have just one moving average crossover that you can say, well, it's either long or short all the time. You can actually build neutral zones even in a moving average crossover system. Um, anyways, with that, um, Rob, what are your thoughts about the key difference for you between breakout um, and moving average Yeah, crossover? so the, the, the thing is I, I obviously trade what I call continuous systems that are always in the market anyway. Um, so the, yeah. the kind of interesting question to maybe ask is well how do i make a breakout system into a continuous system because it's not obvious that it will be um and the the way i do that is is to basically um change the breakout system so that rather than only going long when you reach the top of a channel you basically start being long once you've crossed the middle of the channel and then if the price hits the top of the channel then you'll be at your maximum long and obviously the converse is short if you're below the channel and then hitting the bottom of the channel um, so that's the way I trade breakouts, and you may say, "Well, that's not really a breakout system, is it?" Because, because uh, you know, um, it, it doesn't it doesn't have this kind of binary on-off nature. But that's just not the way my my trading system works. So I I tend to stay away from things that that look like that. Um, if I do that, then I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but I think the the correlation between moving averages and breakouts, if I trade them that way, is about 80, 80 to eighty five percent. So it's pretty high. Um, so so they're not really Sounds doing anything right, fundamentally yeah. different. 
Um, so again, going back to what I said earlier, what do I do in this situation? Well, I trade both of them. Uh, and because they're both in my system continuous, I can just take an average of them and, and, that, and that, that works fine for me. Uh, and I'd rather do that than say categorically, yes, breakouts are better than moving averages. Um, so well, one thing I think um, is interesting, and I should add some context. Last week, I was invited to speak at a panel uh, and everyone else in that panel was from the Society of Technical Analysts, which you will know is the is the home of the the people who look at candlestick and ichimuchu and all this kind of stuff and look for weird patterns and things like that. And each one of them was a, an expert in in a, one of these weird arcane arts of technical analysis. And I was sitting on the end, you know, with my <laughs> with my systematic trading hat on. And um, I, 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 you know, one thing I was to the point I was trying to get across was actually. In my opinion, obviously everyone else disagree with me, but in my opinion, there isn't one best way of doing anything. Um, and you know, you can either keep things really simple and just pick one, and that'll probably be okay. Or if you've got the, the time and the ability, computational power, pick several and take an average. Um, but you know, hunting for the very best way of of finding trends to me is is a complete waste of time because I don't believe there is one. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's a good group, by the way. The uh... Uh, STA group. I I also did a presentation for them once, and uh, it's fun. I mean, they have uh, some similar views and similar sort of ideas, and and some differences as well. Um, and um, I I remember not to pick on any particular types of technical analysis, but I do remember I started out my presentation by showing from one of the uh, oracles, I, I guess, of uh, technical analysis um, using Elliott Wave that they had all their headlines back in 2009 that the equity markets were now making a, a high and it was going to crash. And here we are 12 years later <laughs> and we, we, we just made a new high uh, only a few months ago. So sometimes um, technical analysis uh, don't always get the right, even if you get it from the source, so to speak. Um, but thanks for sharing that secret, a little bit of a secret source about how you do a breakout. I'm not quite sure how you would even classify that as a breakout, frankly, when you kind of start getting in just across the midline. It's not much of a break there, but but I know there's a good reason for it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. it I mean, if, some, if someone can think of a better name as well, because I, I do feel a bit disingenuous calling it the breakout. Yeah. Well, you've had some funny names for some of those. Remember we did a, an episode where you had to come up with some yeah. tickers for your new markets and you had to come up with some really weird ones. I'm sure you can come up with a funny name for your uh, so your closet breakout system. Yeah, range. Something something with the word range in it because it's really a range a range thing. It's you yeah, know, buys, Range buys, Rover, maybe? No. Range Rover, yeah, that's quite a good one. <laughs> Anyways, let's get back to the to today's more serious topics. Question from James. I'm new to CTAs and I've learned a lot from your podcast. Can you please have a discussion on position size? What is the common methodologies, same size for all position uh, or based on convictions? I find myself always buying smaller size. I guess I need more experience and confidence. Um, quick answer on that, Rob. Just Briefly discussing what you see as the kind of the, the normal way, um, because we kind of advocate for both types of of, um, of ways of, of handling positions. Yeah, so the, the the thing that everyone does, I think, is is when you go into a trade, trade based on a, um, a risk-based position. So you basically say, I want to have, you know, say some percentage of, you know, of my equity, say, in this trade, 
So you, and, and you yeah. look at the risk of the instrument, you look at the, the, the size of the contract multiplier for the future, and you can then work that out and say, well, I think the risk of this thing, and you can do it in standard deviation or ATR terms, it doesn't really matter, is this. Therefore, I need to have that many contracts to express that view. Um, then the differences then between you know between us say um, are things like yeah conviction. So I I will increase my position as a trend gets stronger, for example, and and vice versa. Um, other people will obviously keep the same size position on. I will also change the size of my positions if if the volatility changes. Again, not everyone does that. And the the other thing comes around if you're using stops to get out of position, should you you know change the size of your stops to keep those fixed. So. The thing you absolutely should do as a basic thing is, is to to start with just yeah equal equal risk effectively you know so um, if you can take ten positions in your account if it's half a million dollars so you want to put fifty thousand dollars of of you know some kind of risk unit um, on and then you work out how many contracts that, that expresses but but yeah there there are many variations on that basic theme. Well, let me, let me just stop you there because I don't think you meant what you just said. You don't want to take 10% no, of risk um, in one trade. No, probably not, no. I was just, just yeah. But, well, no, but no, but it's... <laughs> oh, no, I just want well, to because... Well, it depends how you define... And, and by the way, of course, we're not yeah, giving yeah, financial course. advice. It also depends on right, how you define... exactly. But yeah, since yeah, James yeah, was right. new... It, exactly. But since James is new to this, I just want to make yeah, absolutely yeah. sure he understands that we're not advocating for 10% no, no, risk it, it, in um, a trade. Maybe yeah, quarter yeah. percent yeah, or exactly. half a percent. Uh, it depends on your holding 10%. period as well. That's the other yeah. thing that, that that needs to be brought in. So exactly, um, yeah. yeah, it's it's. Um, I think everyone does. Re- it's it's crazy to say. Well, I'm always going to buy one lot. Which you know, I'm going to buy one lot of sure. one lot of S and P is completely exactly. different from one lot of I don't know palladium. You know. And then I would just finally add to this, James, is that, you know, once you've defined how much risk you want to take per market, then you also divide that in terms of how many entry points will you have in order to get to a full position. And and that's how you can build up your risk. So you, you, most trend follow starts with a small position, right? We, and before we get to a full position. So that's completely normal. Um, so don't be discouraged by that. And and. Just continue to educate yourself and uh, read some of the books. Uh, read uh, Andreas Klino's book, Following the Trend. That gives pretty practical, uh, as far as I recall, examples of, of things like that. So uh, anyways, Rob, we probably have another 15 minutes or so uh, before we have to uh, wrap up. Um, so I wanted to bring in some of the topics that you had uh, brought along. There were some, um, you know, I'm not entirely sure uh, where you want to go with these Um but and you can pick a, a, a few. There was something about U.S. Treasury bond futures. There was something about the uh, hedge fund awards. Um, that was uh, surprised me a little bit. Uh, there are things about the plumbing uh, in time of war, swift bonds, uh, CDSs, and shares. Um, you mentioned uh, yeah. the Bond King, uh, Bill Gross, and the latest book that has come out. So where do you want to go for the next uh, 15 minutes or so if we can just... Uh... Yeah, let, well, let's focus on bonds. There's a few things there related to bonds. Uh, and, and as most of you know, my, my original sort of background is in fixed income. So if there's an asset class I understand, it's probably bonds. So essentially, uh, you're our Bond King. I, I am. Well, uh, let's say yeah. Prince, Prince or maybe Duke. I'm oh, not yeah. sure I, okay. I would rank as a, as a king necessarily. Okay. Oh, um, and I know I think Moritz also is from a fixed income background, so I wouldn't want to kind of put myself above him in terms of the, okay. you know, the ranking. Um, so, but, you, but you're not the queen. You're not the queen. Let's just be clear. No, no. I my 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 pronouns are uh, definitely he him. Uh, yeah, I'm okay. Uh, definitely. Um, okay. So um, yeah, I think there's a kind of a wider question here, which is, you know, it's quite 
tempting, and in many ways we sort of encourage it, to just treat all markets as being like a number, right? So does it really matter whether this number is S&P, is it palladium? Does it really matter? Because we, we, you, you want to try and discourage people from, for example, thinking that markets should trade differently depending on what they are. Um, and, um, you know, I, I sometimes joke that, that you'd be better off. I mean, I'm, I, mean I, I put a lot of effort into, as we discussed briefly, naming my markets um, because I can never remember, you know, the, the kind of standard tickers um that, that that you have to use on on horrible things like bloomberg um so I, I put my i named my own markets what i thought were helpful names um but i sometimes think actually i should just number them and then i would it would be completely abstract right i'd be like oh Mark, i'm doing very well in market number seven um which would make the the, the kind of we you know that every time i come on the podcast and talk about performance be a bit weird you know, Niels did very well in market number three this week. Uh, market number two, not so well. Um, you, you, you'd be kind of going, well, what, 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 what does that mean? Um, so, yeah, I think that's going a bit far. But, but um, yeah, there is a kind of a philosophical question about how much you really need to understand what you're trading. Um, and that was brought home to me a couple of times this week. So um, I have a, my actual trading system is actually open source. So if you know how to use Python, you can actually, and you're fully aware of the risks involved, which obviously are massive. You can actually download it and use it. And there's a small community of, community of perhaps a dozen people who are actually actively using and contributing to the code, which is obviously very nice. Um, and one of them put a, a question on the discussion board for the code saying, uh, well, Rob, it looks like you've, you've got your, um, your bond futures um, incorrectly labelled. And I was like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I am the bond duke or baron or whatever we're going we're gonna to settle for. Um, uh, I think that's very unlikely. Um, are, you, are you sure? Um, and um, he's like, "Oh, I'm pretty sure," because I went on the, the you know the broker's website and it says this is definitely the US 30-year bond, but you've labelled it as US 20. So um, I, I kind of uh, kind of cleared up the confusion, which, to be fair, is confusing. So I, I, I personally find that the US bonds very confusing, right? Because first of all, you've got Treasury notes and Treasury bonds, which are different. So you can't actually go on, if you're on the CME website and say, you know, can I have the 20-year bond future? They'll say, what's that? You know, do you want the, you know, the 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 bond future or the ultra bond future or the treasury note or the, the, the you know, the, the, this, that and the other? There's about 10 different different options. It's not necessarily obvious which is which. So it is quite confusing, I have to be fair. I think it's probably more confusing in, in US bonds than, than in anything else. Um, I mean, Ger German Germany as well. They're all they've all got names, but once you've learned the names, once you know that you know, Bubble, Schatz, yeah, Bund, and anything wrong uh, with that? And Buxel, exactly. You know, very easy to remember. It's you know, at least for me because I've been trading them for a long time. Um, but but it's not it's not quite so confusing. Um, but anyway, I managed to clear it up by saying, well, what you need to look at for bonds specifically is the delivery basket. So. When you, if you buy a, a bond future and, and hold it to delivery, um, and you can actually ask for physical delivery to be actually given the bond, which of course I would never do because I have no way of receiving treasury bonds. You need to have, you know, a basically institutional level accounts to do that. Um, so I would always roll the bonds in advance. But but if you were to hang on to them and get get them delivered, the question is, what are they allowed to deliver to you? Um, and you, you you look at the baskets and basically um, what I was calling US 20, the delivery basket was between 15 years and 25 years. So, you know, as a rule of thumb, it seemed reasonable to me to label that as US 20. 
Um, and the other Bond, which confusingly is called the Ultra Bond, which sounds like a superhero, like a, <laughs> yeah, a new Marvel absolutely. character maybe. I don't know. Um, what, are, what, is, what are your special powers, Ultra Bond? Um, I have a very small yield. I don't, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to go anywhere with this, am I? Anyway, so, um, but that has a delivery basket of 25 years plus. So to me, it's reasonable to label that as US 30. And in fact, from the actual bonds that are most likely delivered, which are the so-called cheapest to deliver, well, sometimes it will be a 30-year bond, sometimes it'll be a 25-year bond, but, you know, it's always going to be more than the US 20. Um, and I, I explained that the reason why the broker was still labelling the US 20 bond as US 30 year was actually the ultra bond was only introduced about 10 years ago, I believe. Uh, before that, the longest bond you could buy was this thing that was 15 to 25, and that was confusingly called the 30 year bond. So, you know, it's, it's, um, thank God they didn't issue a 50 year and a 100 year bond like some countries did. Well, in I the mean, UK, what would they call them, yeah, well, exactly, like the Super Mario yeah, or whatever, exactly, yeah, mega bond, perhaps, uh, something like that. Um, but but th th so anyway, we got the confusion all sorted out. And and th the question is, well, why does this matter? Well, at the very basic level, it mattered to this guy because he wanted to check that, that the prices he was getting in his system were correct, basically, that everything was lining up. And so he wanted to go onto the CMA website and say, well, we, you, Rob calls it US 20. What actually is it? You know, well, it's it, on the CMA website. I think it's ZB. Rob calls it US 30 that's actually UB and, and so on and so forth. So at a basic level, it kind of matters. But, you know, the question is, does it really, beyond that, does it really matter? Do you really need to know that this is a 20-year bond, this is a 30-year bond? You know, is that is that important? Um, and, um, yeah, I, I, I used to, I, I'm trying to kind of mostly force myself not to really care about what, what's going on in these underlying markets, but that's not always possible. But having said that, I don't know where whether you want to anything further you want to go. Oh but yeah, I've got another another story. But you please please jump in. No, no. But when 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 but one thing that is interesting, you know, where we say, well, it doesn't really matter what we trade, right? But in the fixed income world, I actually think it does matter a little bit because you can also trade the three months contract, which of course is the euro dollar. Of course, you can trade that. At. And actually, in those contracts, you really need to be somewhat careful because there the volatility can look deceivingly low, especially when you have, as we've been through now, a period of time where interest rates is effectively zero. Well, if if that means there is, quote-unquote, very little or no volatility, you could end up with a Super Mario position, let's call it that, um, without really noticing that that might be incredibly more risky than what it looks like. So... That's another reason why I do think it matters a little bit to understand. I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to you on that point, Niels, Actually, because I, I I agree with okay. you, but also I don't think that that is necessarily a um, a fixed income problem. It's a fixed income problem in the in the point that the the things that have the lowest risk do tend to be yeah euro dollar and or say two or three year bonds, which obviously also have very low volatility, particularly over the last few years. Um, and that that feeds into yeah your positions can get too big, and the other issue is it increases your trading costs in risk adjusted terms, which is the way you should measure it. Um, but I I have tools in place to manage this, so I have for example position limits that are based on the volatility of the instrument, um, and there are some instruments I that have, whose volatility is so low I will not actually trade them, 
Um, and I've just pulled up the list actually. So um, yeah, and there I've got the the bobble. I've got the the three year Italian bond. I've got the um, the US two year. I've got the the JGB interestingly, which is a ten year bond, but obviously Japanese. I've got Euribor in there. I've got Euro dollar in there, but I've also got in there ethanol. I've got in there um, the the Chinese onshore um, currency contract, um, and I've got Singapore dollar US dollar in there as well. So, you know. I, I would have picked currency exactly pairs, exactly so yeah. so but but there's this is so what I'm saying is absolutely you need to be really careful of things with very low risk but a that is not just a fixed income problem and b I don't necessarily need yeah, to understand the fixed income markets to to um to do that so I you know I don't think that's that's necessarily an argument in favor of understanding what markets are rather than just numbering them now I will give you an argument in favour, actually. And then I'll tell you a nice story from the Bond King book to kind of wrap up this discussion of bonds. Um, so um, I, I have a, uh, a system, that, a report that tells me when I should roll my futures contracts. And again, someone, is, and, and one of the nice things about having this community of people is it's almost like having my own little kind of research group that are, con that are saying to me, you know, every now and then, this looks wrong. And the answer might be, well, that's because you, you don't understand it. Or it might be I've got a bug in my code, which means I've found it. That's brilliant. Um, or it might be that I've, you know, I have made a mistake. Um, and they're like, well, why haven't you rolled this 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 particular contract? And I'm like, well, because it doesn't roll for another five years. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and I, I, I obviously I'm, I'm getting the expiry date from the broker through their automated trading system. Um, so I, I'm like, well, I'll just check it's not a problem with my code. No, it's definitely coming in wrong from the broker. So I, I wrote a very, you know, angry message to the IT department saying, you know, guys, come on, get your act together. You, you give me an expiry date here. There's always exactly five years out. Now at that point, I should have, the red flag should have been raising like, it's always exactly five years out. That doesn't sound like a, a bug. That sounds like a feature. Um, now I should tell you that the the contract I'm talking about is. The rather complex named um, CMA five-year interest rate swap ERIS future. Um, now, the the, um, the there's there's a couple of different ways you can trade interest rate swaps using futures, um, and the the kind of more traditional uh, ways is to to basically have it like a futures contract in the sense that if you're trading, say, um, where are we? We'd say June 2022. Five years. What that means is you're you're trading a swap that will start on June the twenty June in June twenty twenty two and will last for five years. If you don't want to be delivered into that swap, um, then you, again you roll it so on and so forth. So it's very much like trading a bond or indeed anything. But this Eris future is not like that at all. Um, what you actually are trading is is a swap that is live effectively, uh, and the price of the future is based on the MPV of the cash flows of that swap, which is why. It's a five-year swap, which means the, the the thing actually doesn't finish trading until five years' time. That's that's what is effectively the expiry date. Um, so that was a, a case where I'd fundamentally misunderstood the you know the the nature of the thing I was trading, um, and it didn't have any massively bad consequences for me because there was you know never any danger, for example, of me being delivered into the swap. There been a problem because um, it's purely cash settled because of the way the mechanism works. Um, but but you know it, it is an example of of the fact there are these weird corners of the market of futures markets where you can't just treat things as all the same. Another example would be there's there's a few markets that have variable contract sizes 
I'm thinking of Australian fixed income. It's always fixed income. That's a problem for some reason. Um, I, I, so, um, so yeah, uh, I would say 99% of the time, it's fine to just treat all markets as just abstract numbers. But, you know, you've got to be a little bit careful because there are those little traps out there to catch you. And I, I was caught by one this week with this, this weird, um, you know, iris swap future. Right. No, absolutely. Before we wrap up, uh, Rob... Oh, I need to um, tell you my story. My Bill yeah, Gross exactly. story. Is that okay? Yeah. Unless you've got anything else to add to add on that. No, no. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. I'm also going to just curious about what, what on earth the uh, hedge fund awards were doing in your in your topic. Well, let's, so let, let's do let's let's do Bill Gross. So I'm I'm reading. It's not not a new new book, but it's I've I've only just started reading it. Um, and that's the Bond King. Is it his book or is it Mary Child's? It's book? It's Mary Child's book. Um, okay. About Bill Gross called the Bond King. Uh, it's really it's very interesting. Um, I actually have a friend who is currently working for Pimco. Um, so I'm I'm going to read this book and then and then email him and sort of say, you know, how much of this is true? Do you think? Um, because uh, there's some stories in there. Um, but one one story that I found really fascinating and relates back to the discussion we're having um, is in the 80s. Um, there was this particular uh, mortgage bond future um, that that um, you had the option of physically delivering, and Pimco worked out that there was not really enough of this paper on the street. Um, and um, there was effectively an arbitrage available whereby um, you could force to be delivered something that was much more valuable than the, the future suggested it would be. So there was this, uh, you know, situation. I think they ended up buying something like 80 or 90% of the, the open interest of this thing. Um, and then, of course, it came to the, the point of asking for physical delivery. And back then, it really was physical delivery. So these PIMCO guys were having to, to go round to, to, to banks with briefcases, picking up you know, actual pieces of paper um, and, um, you know, and, and making sure that, you know, that this thing, this this arbitrage, if it was effectively an arbitrage trade, trade worked. Um, and yeah, I think they made about $80 million from it, which nowadays, of course, is just a rounding error about on, on, on PIMCO's massive P&L. But, but back then was a lot of money for them. Um, and, uh, you know, about a few months later, the, the rules were changed and they introduced limits on what proportion of the open interest you could you could be in in uh, in particular contracts to to stop basically anyone from doing this this again? So um, there, there's an example of where um, you know, and obviously this is this is well beyond what we could do now, and I'm not sure there are any of those those easy arbitrages out there nowadays. Uh, but an example of where understanding your future in intimate detail can can give you an edge. Yeah, no, I can add one story to that because I actually my career started as a, a government bond trader uh, uh, back in another, the 80s. Another fixed income guy. Another fixed income guy. So I, I, I feel like I'm not really the, the you know as high ranking as you even. You must be a prince, the bond prince. Well, <laughs> so my, my story is just very simple. We had a new guy coming on the desk um, and... Um, and I can't remember exactly what kind of uh, fixed income uh, market he was uh, doing it in, but he was looking at this this um, uh, bond that was priced so out of whack in terms of what it was uh, yielding, et cetera, et cetera. So he just went out and, and went short. But of course, what he ended up doing was he actually shorted more than the whole outstanding issue. <laughs> so you can imagine how that... Uh, works out when you are squeezed by your counterparts. Um, so, uh, yeah, these things uh, probably don't happen anymore. But back then when IT systems and alerts weren't uh, that common, uh, you can get into some serious trouble 
Um, as Bill Wang, who also features in your notes today, seems to have gotten himself into this week. Maybe that's for another podcast. I don't know. Yeah. But there was one other thing you wanted to talk about. Uh, or was it just the hedge fund award? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, asking about what was that all well, about? Well, so, so yeah. So actually, interestingly, I, I saw the, the, this is the, there's obviously lots of different awards, as you know. This was the Institutional Investor Awards. And um, I, I kind of looked at the list of, you know, you know, the results, if you like. I thought, hmm, there's some interesting things there. But then completely independently, Jerry actually, uh, posted on Twitter his own thoughts on the matter. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the I think it was the, I'm trying to remember the exact category, I think it was the best uh, quantitative hedge fund. I think that was the category. I always get these categories mixed up. Uh, and that was uh, Systematica. Uh, and again, to declare an interest, I have I have uh, some, a good friend working there as well. So, uh, you know, perhaps I'm biased, but I don't, I don't think that's a bad... Uh, yes, quantitative hedge fund manager of the year, but but um, Jerry came in and said, "Well, I sp- does that mean Mulvaney, Mulvaney aren't a hedge fund, or that they're not quantitative, or something something like that?" Because in his opinion, they they were better right. and they were being overlooked by you know this sort of smart you know this smart outfit right. in in Geneva, bigger firm, yeah, this big firm in, sure. in Geneva, full of probably full sure, of PhDs, sure. I guess. Um, and uh, you know, maybe I guess not not as pure a trend following firm, although they do they do do quite a bit of trend following as well. So, but yeah, I mean these these, these awards are. I mean, you might know more about it than I do, but they seem they're quite opaque. Um, it's rarely just about performance. Um, but I think it's one of those areas where I probably shouldn't. You you probably talk about can't. You probably can't comment about, for obvious reasons. I, I, for good reason, <laughs> for good I probably reasons. shouldn't. Well, I'll comment. Give my I'll comment and say yeah, some of these not... awards and how and how and how they are given. Uh, yeah, let's put it exactly. that way. But uh, but anyway, the, the, anyway, the thing I was going to say was I think it'll be very interesting to look at next year's awards because obviously we're going to have potentially some very interesting performance numbers. Um, and uh, are you going to be submitting your performance, <laughs> Rob? I don't think I would qualify, seeing as how I don't legally run a hedge fund. But if there's a if there's a category, you know, like in golf, sometimes you see amateur players in the in the big tournaments. They, there's a couple of wild cards for them normally, and there's actually a right. prize for the best amateur. So if there was okay. a prize for the best amateur in hedge funds, I mean, I'm not sure I'd win it, but I'd, I'd happily enter definitely. Sounds good. Sounds good. Speaking of performance, um, it's been pretty good in uh, April. Uh, although we don't have Friday's numbers, I don't think they changed much on Friday. Um, I was having a quick look, and I don't think much happened really. So, um, but we do have some pretty good numbers as of Thursday. So, the Beta Fifty Index up almost five percent, four point nine five for the month, up fourteen point four nine percent for the year so far. The SockGen CTA Index up uh, a bit more than five and a half percent for the month up 19.08% for the year. The SockGen Trend Index up another 6.86% in April, up 25.76%. That definitely is the best start ever, I think, in that history. Um, SockGen Short-Term Traders Index up 3.33% and up nine uh, for April and up 9.04% for the year. I mentioned the Trend Barometer up uh, at a level of 64, so that's strong. Um, the SockGen Multi Alternative Risk Premier Index, just to throw in a little bit of that, uh, up 3.22% uh, for the month, 
but only up 2.82% for the year. Uh, MSCI World Equity Index down 2.81% for the month. That doesn't seem right, actually, when I see it here. No, it's definitely not right, sorry. But the year-to-date is correct, down 13.49. I seem to have copied the World Government Bond Index in that category. I think it's down about 7%, actually. Uh, the world uh, MSCI world, but the world government bond index was down 2.81 percent um, for the month and down 7.56 percent now year to date. Um, so there you have it. If you enjoy these conversations, um, by all means, feel free to go to iTunes and Spotify, leave a rating and review because they really do help find uh, allow more people find our little podcast here. And uh, by the way, let me also remind you that you really should go and check the midweek episode this week uh, where we were hosting the one and only Peter Cyan. Um, and, you know, he's had some of the most accurate forecasts that he's documented in his books uh, over the years in terms of the geopolitics that's unfolding right now. So I can't recommend enough uh, that you go and listen to that episode. And also the week before with uh, Dr. Ben Hunt, that was also very insightful, but of course on a completely different topic. Next week, I'm joined by uh, Professor Brennan, also known as Rich, uh, for another fun, insightful conversation, no doubt. So make sure you send in your questions ahead of time. As always, info at toptradersonplug.com is where you can send them. And we will do our best to uh, answer all of them for you uh, next week. From Rob and me, thanks ever so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.